Hey, Mountain Murders fans, this is Heather. And this is Dylan. How are you doing tonight? I'm so glad that you didn't open with your weird British voice. Yeah, I know. I feel like you've been watching Seinfeld or something. <laughs> My tummy. Hello! Every time that, yeah, every time that he is supposed to say hello, he's just like, hello! I don't know. Yeah, but uh, how are you doing tonight? Um, well, I'm okay if you can get your shit together so we can do this podcast. Let's do it. This is the one. <laughs> this is the one. It feels good. How many takes have we tried with this? Like nice six? and loose. I'm really glad this is for our patrons. Right. One, because they're probably a little bit more forgiving than like a broader audience. I mean, they do so graciously give us money every month to keep the podcast going. Yeah, and that's why I'm going to try to extra hard to not suck at this one for them because they deserve a good one. Well, this is story. one that you're actually going to lead, right, Dylan? Yeah, I'm going to try to. I'm excited. So what are we going to be talking about tonight? This is a like a companion to our episode about the Kentucky Vampire Cult. Right, about the whole kind of goth culture and, uh, you know, the the crazy satanic panic that gripped the nation for generations. Right, and we called that show Kentucky Vampire Cult, and it really wasn't because it's like a vampire cult, but more like a poking fun at. The whole thought that these, you know, people were trying to play these kids off like, oh, Satanist, just active killers. Yeah, like something out of, of a the dark horror lord. Movie. Yeah. yeah, we were just kind of goofing around and called it that. But um, we we were, ugh, I can't talk. We really wanted to get into this discussion though about the Satanic Panic. We're both children of the '80s. Yes, we and are. So we grew up during the time that this was in the news. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll never forget. I remember it. I remember it being on the nightly news, and you know. Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaw, every time you saw their face, they were talking about it. You know, it's used to, we used to get the news like that in the old days. Uh, yeah. A couple times a day, you know, or maybe a newspaper. And it was everywhere. Everybody was talking about it. Okay, so lead us, lead us astray with a satanic panic, Dylan. Okay, so I'm going to take it even further back of uh, kind of the origins of the idea of these uh, Satanists or satanic cults that abuse, sexually abuse children is basically the meat of it. And so in 1972, there was a book published uh, titled The Satan Seller by Mike Warnke. And uh, for gener- decades after that, because of this book, he was considered the authority on Satanism by anyone who wrote about it. Well, I was really curious about this guy because I was like, what exactly makes him an expert on Satanism? And delving into this guy's history, um, not only is he supposedly an expert on, you know, sat- uh, Satan and Satanic worship and whatever, he's a Christian comedian. Uh-oh. Because who knew that there was such a thing? <laughs> but I was looking into this guy, and so he was born in 1946. When he was five years old, his family moved to Tennessee. His father opened up a truck stop. In 1955, his mother was killed in a car accident, and then a few years later, his dad died, which left him an orphan. And so after his father's death, he went to live with two aunts in Sparta, Tennessee. From there, he went to his father's half-sister and her husband to San Bernardino, California. It was during this time that he says he was introduced to Satanism. He started at San Bernardino Valley College, and that is where... The Dark Lord enveloped him. Oh no, he made a deal with the devil? (laughs) I guess. Then he like dropped out of school. He went into the Navy. He was a uh, hospital corpsman in the Navy. And he went to uh, Vietnam for six months. So according to the book that you're talking about, The Satan Seller, he talks about converting to Christianity when he was in Navy boot camp. Okay. But there's a high school friend, Charlotte Tweeten, a girl that, you know, he'd kind of grown up with, that recalls him being a Christian in high school. So he was already a Christian. Yeah. So she's like, you know, this is BS. Well, it was later disproven that this guy's full of shit, but go on. Yeah. So, yeah, that guy had looked like, sounded like he had a lot of misfortune in his life, parents and all that, being an orphan. Right. And so the good thing he turned to the Lord. But so in the 80s and 90s, as I said, he was considered the authority. So I would like to read that book, you know? Yeah. I would like to just see what kind of angle he's taken on that. Well, I'll tell you, some of the book, he talks about his experience being a Satanist, how he was involved in sex orgies. I like how your voice almost does this when you... I know. Alcoholism, (laughs) drug dealing, uh, how he rose through the ranks of Satanism to become like this high priest. 
how he presided over satanic rituals, black spells, um, summoning demons, ritual sex, ritual kidnapping and rape, and that he um, took uh, an att- basically had an attempt on his life um, with a heroin overdose. And then he went to Vietnam, and he found Jesus, and became this, you know, evangelist, or, ev- how do you say that word? Ev- evangelist? Um, evangelist? That's no. it. Is it? Yeah, I don't know. Is it an evangelical Christian? Maybe, right, but. evangelist, I guess, whatever that term is. Then he uh, goes on to talk about how he went back to California to live a happy life, and the book became a bestseller. Okay, so here, okay, I'm just going to guess he wrote this crazy ass story that people weren't used to seeing stuff like that and they couldn't believe what they was reading and he was claiming it was true. Yeah. And that's how that book sold. And so uh, that's kind of, you know, shaky, right? That's shaky evidence and everything for this guy to be considered the authority on this topic. For law enforcement, everything. Yeah, it was in 1985 that he appeared on the ABC show 2020 a news report about oh, I bet, Yeah, I Satanism. saw that. I didn't watch it, but yeah. And I guess the show was called The Devil Worshippers. And he was on there. He included uh, in a number of segments. He discussed the implements, the clothing used in ceremonies. He had some scar that he said uh, was where he'd repeatedly cut so that blood could be used in satanic rituals and ceremonies. He talks about what drew him to Satanism. Oh, we got to watch so that. So from there on, he kind of like, you know. He's making money off of it. Yeah, he was totally exploiting. That's exactly what he was the doing. gullible nature of people who buy into this crap. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the whole time, 80s, 90s, you know, things are just get the media just keeps it going. Every little story, if it's, uh, you know, some kids who happen to have black T-shirts on and did something, oh, they're, you know, more Satanists, more, I mean, they really fan the flames on this one. And um, for a long time. And uh, then along the way, a man named John Todd spoke at churches, um, a lot of churches, about witches, druids, and the Illuminati. Father flaming the, you know, or fanning the flames of this hysteria and all these rumors. And then, oh, I heard these stories and such and such read this book. You know, it's just like a, it's crazy when a a group of people get to this point. Well, I want to know where all of these people are. Like, not the religious nuts but um the, uh, all the occultists uh, uh, yeah like the covens the, and the, the wi- yeah the wizards and the wiccans and the warlocks and um i want to go hang out with them ghosts and goblins and druids and the illuminati like i want to know how i can sign up because it actually sounds pretty cool i didn't know that the illuminati hung out with druids but now no, I that know. i do know that i want to hang out with both well of them. since this is a podcast and it could potentially go anywhere I would just like to say, if you're listening in and you're part of the Illuminati, call me. Okay. Oh my God, that was so smart because they're real. Mm-hmm. Maybe. John Todd's. So first we had Mike Warnke in his bullshit made up book in 72. And now John Todd along the way, you know, just further, you know, just causing more and more panic and stories with people about to going to all these churches and I'd say probably heavily in the South, I'm guessing on that. Just so he would like, just go to churches as like a guest speaker. Yeah. And yeah. do like just his some little kind of lecture. His lecture about yeah, about satan- how to sniff out the devil worshippers. Lectures in town. about literally witches, druids, and the Illuminati. I mean, I can only imagine. Sounds pretty rock and roll and gnarly. Well, I'm gonna guarantee it's like um, <laughs> these hip churches now where you know they get everybody all excited with like a kind of rock sounding song. Yeah. I bet these people came out of church. It wasn't the usual. You know, same old little small town preacher. They just heard this lurid tale of just all these crazy things. Could you imagine? I bet everybody talked about it for weeks after this guy came through and uh, gave his little thing at the Well, church. yeah. I mean, I'm just imagining he probably went to these fire and brimstone churches. It paid. Already. I bet he was paid 50 bucks or whatever. Here, Yep. You know. Oh, oh their yeah. Their favorite book is Revelations, and they love to tell you how you're going to burn in hell. Old school. So, yeah, like the kind of church that I grew up in. And <laughs> so, yeah, just hardline Baptist. Baptist. Right. And, you know, Pentecostal, all that stuff, you know, that happened right around us in this uh, Bible Belt. We're right in the, We said the other day that there's a lot of churches around here, right? Oh, yeah. Like you go in small communities and you'll see like seven churches like clustered right there in a five mile area. It's very true. But anyway, so yeah, you got John Todd. 
just fanning the flames. And then in 1980, another book titled Michelle Remembers, Tale of Her Abuse by Satanic Ritual Abusers. I remember, now I've never read this book, but I do remember in the 80s being a child and hearing about this book. And I think even seeing um, maybe the author or Michelle like on talk shows. Right. You know, because when I was a kid, I'll be honest, I really loved to watch like Geraldo and Sally oh, yeah. Jesse you know and was. That Donahue was a, that and all that. was only drama, you know, or anything like that. Yeah, when I was them. home from school sick, had a sick day or something. I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to eat some Campbell's chicken noodle soup. I'm going to watch some TV. Sally Jesse Raphael. Daytime TV is the Jones. best. Exactly. Now, I remember hearing of this around the edges. I believe even one time, uh, maybe in like a Goodwill or something, saw the book. Oh, my God. And my mom and someone who was with her, I don't recall, you know, started calling, oh, it's a book, you know, oh, because this is supposedly an autobiographical autobiographical that word what is wrong with us why are we like i don't we have know. such poor vocabulary we today. don't we don't yeah today we do we sound like idiots today but yeah <laughs> a book about her life this is basically you know they're saying this is a true story of her account of the abuse right. and i'm going to assume it's crazy any stories about these cult well, satanic cults and stuff just instantly go to they're eating babies they're, you know, draining their blood. Yeah, there was one of the books that was popular during this time, and I cannot recall the title of it, but it was like a young woman, and she described how these cult members or whatever, like, took her baby and, like, made her sacrifice her baby yeah. and, like, drink I mean, the, blood the or story some just, shit. They just go, and a lot of time, every time a lot of this is all proved to be a fr- fake, not true. But it's like they just instantly go like way over the top with it. I guess because it's made up, maybe. Or it's what they think a right. satanic cult would do. It's their imagination. Well, you know, a lot of it was just the satanic panic of like, oh, people are worshiping the devil and they're doing all this stuff. But then there was also like the satanic ritual abuse that went along with that. Right. Which made it more of a sexual thing. Like these satanic ritual abuse types of things were involving like physical sexual abuse of people in these satanic rituals and then of course in the most extreme form there were allegations that involve a conspiracy of a worldwide organization so you got to think about like what the illuminati or something that includes the powerful wealthy world elite in which children are abducted or bred for sacrifices pornography prostitution that kind of thing which is pretty interesting because now if you come down to it, there's the whole Jeffrey Epstein arrest that's happened recently. Look at that. And then um, there was the whole Pizzagate thing. Yes, and there was that thing in Nebraska. Oh, I the Franklin. To, I couldn't, the Franklin Trust. Yeah, the Franklin Ring or whatever, yes. which is a fucking crazy well, that, story. Hey, I, and okay, that almost sends me off on a tangent when well, I, I think know. about that's this That's like stuff. a whole other story we could get it into. Is. But then you have like... Of course, when Pizzagate was in the news, the Tom Podesta like, yeah. art collection. And what's so crazy about that is there's the one painting of the little girls in the swimming pool that looks very similar to the Biltmore House's sw- swimming pool. And then, of course, there's talk that George Vanderbilt was part of the like Illuminati and participated in these abuses of girls and satanic shit dating back into like the 1800s. I've never looked at the Podesto paintings. Well, they're, I mean, they're fucked up art. I think some of it's kind of cool. I could see where people would be like, oh my God. But they're probably the same. Well, they're probably the same kind of people that go by the um, Thomas Kincaid art at Walmart. Right. And that's, that's, I mean, not to offend you if you have Thomas Kincaid in your house, but, you know, it's not exactly high art. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah, I go to any gallery, I see something I don't understand. I'm like, oh, what the hell is that supposed to be? Well, yeah, I mean, art's supposed to spark discussion and make you think. But yeah, so I did not know that about. Podesto. Yeah. I, did, I mean, I knew there was a whole thing there. I've just never dug dug into that very story because but at the time. Goes, I mean, here it, we've moved away from the 80s and 90s having the satanic panic thing, but that idea of this powerful still world there. elite group that are having sex with children, that are making these sacrifices, that there's some sort of like Illuminati type of organization responsible. And then it starts to come out that Jeffrey Epstein was essentially trafficking and doing all this shit with young girls. And then you've got all these really high-profile people who are buddies with him. And I don't know. Makes you think. But that's a conspiracy for another time. All I will say... satanic panic stuff. All I'll say is thousands of kids go missing to never be seen again. 
their bodies ever found. And I'm not talking a few thousands every year. I know. Makes missing you wonder. Missing to never be seen again or never find their body. All these, you know, I mean, but anyway, that's makes, all I'll say. makes you wonder. Where all these kids go. Right. For the rest of their life to where they don't come back as adults and say, this is what happened to me. See, I'm getting, okay, I get excited. But anyway, back to the satanic panic. Yeah. Let's do it. Here we are. So we are rocking through Michelle Remembers in the 80s. People getting worse and worse. And it really kind of focused on that whole satanic ritual abuse. Yes. So that's when it started. Physically abused, sexually abused. She spent her whole life basically being Satan's slut. Yeah, I think this is when, (laughs) this is when, this is the significant moment that that's actually what you're describing is brought to the forefront. It's not just killing cats. It's not just, you know, Praying to the devil, you know, Not whatever. Not just like spray painting satin. Right. This is taking it to spelled satin lives under like a, you know, freeway. Satin lives. Overpass. Yeah. yeah. No, this is taking it to basically they're coming. They're all powerful and they're coming for your kids. Okay. This is where it takes it now in the 80s. And so it rocks on like that. And I'm sure a lot of you guys out there will remember instances of these types of stories and stuff as you were growing up. If you're lucky enough to be old like me. Don't you wish that you were old like me? Mm. Okay, oh, sorry. baby. That's going to be our first hit single. It is, yeah. On the Mountain Murders soundtrack. My sciatic nerve. <laughs> it's going to be a great hit. Okay. No, I like it when you go to get up and you have like an injury now and you don't remember doing anything to that part of your body. You're like, how did I injure myself in my sleep? I in- Yeah, I, I, I lay injured. Well, you had that knee thing yeah, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and you were like, I don't know what I've done to my knee. Oh, you were like thinking about going to the doctor. Yeah, it was like maybe you tore something. Dude, I'm telling you, it was like I'd been in a um, sports accident or something, you know? I mean, it was just all twisted up, and I did not do anything. Well, we're old. It happens. I so guess. that's what happens. But yeah, so here we are rocking into 93, a very famous case I think most everyone listening is familiar with honestly any true crime person is going to have known of this so in 93 of course i'm coming to paradise lost oh yeah and the west memphis three big story and and a great documentary great documentary and a very interesting case and a very sad case in my opinion all the way around uh, especially with the you know the little victims little boys they were done you know so horribly but this falls right in there the cops small town you got this group of Black t-shirt group kids are always, you know, palling around together. People always see them going around town together. Like this and that. metalhead Hesher kids. Yeah, but yeah, you know, those kids, everybody thinks in their head. And they're probably ain't done, doing a damn thing, you know. They're just they're, wearing like a Metallica t-shirt. They're just wearing a Metallica. <laughs> That's what happened back then. You just know, wear a Metallica, right? yeah, a Metallica or a Slayer or Black some Sabbath. Iron Maiden. And yeah. people just knew you were offering up sacrifices to the probably had long devil. hair and might have been a little bit of an outcast. Probably spent a lot of time... In the smoke hole, the school, <laughs> yeah. wherever your high school had a smoke hole. Oh, I'm, yeah, I do remember that, yep. actually. The courtyard, <laughs> inner courtyard, typically, was the, everybody's smoke hole for every school. That's crazy, isn't it? But, yeah, but not really hurting anyone. Drawing, you know, probably being pretty creative in ways. And people well, yeah, they probably were like the artsy kids, the weird theater geek kids. I mean, I was part of that group. Right. At my high school, I was definitely like one of the outcast kids and um, hung out with the weirdos and the freaks. Yeah, I bounced around. I had all kinds of friends and I definitely felt at home in a group like you're describing, you know, yeah. just kicking around. So and not really bothering anyone and, and all that. So, but the cops instantly piled it on them. You know, they got a hold of Jesse and we were talking in our episode, Kentucky Vampire Cult episode about. If someone is has a lower IQ, then the chances well, they're easy to manipulate. They're easy targets you for can everybody. Kind of like yeah, the people in the group manipulate them or try to put it all on them. In the end, the cops will, you know, if they think, especially if they think they're right, will you know go to great lengths to you know manipulate them as well if they can, as we've seen in that case famously. Because his confession, Jesse's confession, was um, is what really starts sealing the fate for everybody. Well, there was a lot of stuff going on, and um, and I did make some notes um, to talk about with this episode. Yeah. So can I dive into a little bit of what I found? Yeah, I'm done now. So I brought us up through 93, and when they they fucked up those boys' lives and let the killers of those little kids go. Well, I'm going to go back all the way to 1966. Okay. And that was the advent of the Church of Satan. 
which would definitely mark a shift in um, societal attitudes. Um, Anton LaVey, of course, the founder, the first year in the age of Satan, as he called it, uh, it was like all of a sudden this really like feared taboo belief system had started to ingrain itself in public consciousness. Of course, it started to appeal to celebrities, rock stars, and they kind of made the movement mainstream, like famously Jane Mansfield had like participated in some photo opportunity. And let me just say, if you don't know much about Jane Mansfield, she was a fucking public relations, marketing, self-promoting queen. Really? Like she knew how to get her name out there before she was even famous. She was doing all this shit. She was a hustler. Like she knew what the fucking shit she was doing. I mean, she was awesome. So I have much respect for Jane. She went and did this photo shoot where she was almost like, you know, pretending to be part of this satanic ritual just for headlines. I'm sure she got them. Oh, she did. I mean, still today, people are like, oh, she was a Satanist and part of the Illuminati. Sammy Davis Jr. hung out with Anton LaVey and was interested in some of the tenets of the Church of Satan. But, you know, it started to become kind of mainstream. And even though it was never like a hugely popular religion, if you will, Church of Satan, there were some counterculture folks that were kind of shifting away from the traditional stuff, being religious, those attitudes. You know, you also have to consider during that time the civil rights movement was happening. There was the rock and roll scene just bursting. You had hippies, free love. People were protesting the war. Women's rights movement was happening. You started having more of the, um, you know, like gay and lesbian, you know, coming to the forefront, trying to get rights as well. New Wave and all spiritualism and all that starting to come up through that time too? Well, it kind of was during the 60s. Yeah. I mean, that's when people were really, oh, we're going to expand our minds, started practicing more like new agey type of stuff. Get a guru. Going to ashrams and like, you know, doing yoga on a mountaintop and you know, all that weird shit that we don't like to do. So it was all going on at that time. And so the Church of Satan was kind of a reflection of society rejecting those traditional values. Well, a portion of society anyway. And from what I understand and what I know and what I've studied and people I know that are involved with the idea of Satan, Satanism, you know, being either the Church of Satan or the Satanic Temple, it is a lot of this, they call it like left-hand path because it's like just sort of rejecting what society expects and just sort of doing your own thing. Okay. And so the 60s, that was such an attitude at that time. So it's easy to see how this age of Satan kind of spread or whatever throughout the 60s. And then you've got to think about Charles Manson and the Manson family also had this kind of um, part in churning out that satanic panic because they were definitely part of a counterculture movement. They go kill Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, all of these people. Wrote all that JC stuff. Ring. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people thought automatically, like, they must be devil worshippers. Plus, they kind of ha- were involved in, you know, like the Manson family cult. They had Spawn Ranch, all that. Right. Because that's what people think devil wor- people in the Church of Satan do. Go murder 10 right. people and put blood everywhere. Yeah. And that's but they're the, probably just figuring out math problems and coming up with a political stance. That's the hysteria behind it. Right. But then I started looking into some of the other uh, stories and true crime cases that kind of went hand in hand with the satanic panic. Ooh, what'd you find with well, that? Well, I found a couple good ones, but this one definitely I remember and have seen a lot of like true crime shows about, a lot of discussion, because from here we're going to get into talking about some of the music of this time, okay. the 80s, the 90s, that kind of drove this hysteria as well. But it was the summer of 1984, there was a 17-year-old drug dealer and, of course, self-professed Satanist, Ricky Queso, who murdered his friend Gary Lowers in the woods in Newport, New York. He was high on mescaline. Mescaline? See, I don't know much about drugs, so I can't even pronounce that. According to the coroner's report, this guy Queso had stabbed his friend 36 times, He had sliced out his eyeballs, which, of course, led to this huge media coverage that this murder was, like, you know, ritualistic in nature. Right. Again, satanic ritual abuse. Jimmy Troano and Albert Canones, who were friends of these two, were also present at the crime. 
and said that before this guy Lowers had his life taken, that the guy Queso <clears throat> commanded he say, you love Satan. And the guy's like, I love my mother. And then that's when he was killed because he wouldn't profess his love. Oh, my God. Dedication to Satan. But then weeks after the murder, Queso was going to take all of these teenagers into the woods. He shows them the body. He brags. He tells people that he killed Lowers because Satan told him to. The Dark Lord hath commanded. He believed that the devil had manifested in the form of a black crow and that it's coincided with Queso asking if he should take Lauer's life and that when the crow would be like, caw, 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 he interpreted that as Satan's approval. Do you like my sound effects? Yeah, I don't want you to stop. Well, just so you know, I did um, start college. I was a theater major. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. I played a groundhog in my school's second grade play. Not to Maybe. brag or anything, but do you know who I am? <laughs> do so you know the little <laughs> little lady Wellington? So for months afterwards, the media presented Queso as the Satanist who was part of a cult, further fueling this hysteria that was already taking root because you had the book that you're talking about, yeah. the Satanic Seller, you yeah. had Michelle Remembers, you know, right. all this shit is kind of coming out. So this just exploded. And the Knights of the Black Circle was supposedly the name of the sect, the satanic sect that he had been part of. Yeah. Although there was absolutely no evidence behind that at all. It was just like some weird nickname that got passed around that people bought into. Right. And um, there was even a press release following all of this by the Suffolk County Police that claimed that Queso regularly took part in these rituals honoring the devil, that he was this devil worshiper. And this was backed up by his own father, who claimed that his son was obsessed with reading about witchcraft and wearing apparel featuring satanic symbols. Sorry, guys. We had a uh, 12-year-old interrupt. He was coming in here to show us his devil-worshipping artwork that he had drawn out. Just kidding. A lot of red. <laughs> yeah, use the red up. He does like to wear black. Should I be concerned? No, I just let him wear black. That's what he wants to do. So this kid was, like, obsessed with wearing these, you know, T-shirts with satanic symbols, reading about witchcraft. I'm like... Doesn't sound that unusual to me, but okay. And on the day that Kesa was arrested, he was, of course, wearing an ACDC t-shirt. Oh, no. Yeah. So this led to the inevitable association between heavy metal and his atrocities. Murder, satanic, ritual abuse, all this. Um, and then, of course, all these parents start looking for a scapegoat. And that's where the music comes in. Oh, uh, yes. But um, this Queso kid, after he was arrested, killed himself 48 hours later. So, you know, he ended up committing suicide. But he was a huge heavy metal fan. So, again, got parents, religious figures looking for a scapegoat. This kid loved Ozzy Osbourne and Judas Priest, so it didn't take long for that association to be made. But it wasn't only... The atrocity, this murder, you know, that would be linked to heavy metal music and all these artists making it. Um, it was in 1988 that Geraldo Rivera, such a great daytime TV piece of shit. Yeah, host, I'll never forget <laughs> when the clan started throwing chairs on his show. Or when he tried to dig up, was it like Al Capone's yeah. tomb or vault? And there was, there was nothing like in nothing it? Nothing in it. There uh, like wasn't even like a, you know, an empty Coke can. I mean, it was just empty. It was... Yeah, sad. they spent like millions promoting that too. <laughs> right. Like they just knew it was going to be something. So Geraldo Rivera had this documentary called Devil Worship, exposing Satan's underground. Dun, 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 dun. It's a good name for a punk band. Yeah, well it aired and it depicted, of course, metalheads. Any teenager with long hair, probably. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, drinking blood, grave robbing sacrilegious, you know, kids running around being hooligans. It discussed a bunch of murders involving young people linked to devil worship. Um, one of the most famous of all of these was Thomas Sullivan. He was a 14-year-old who had stabbed his mother to death. And it just so happened that he was a huge fan of none other than Black Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, they're good at this. When uh, <laughs> society starts, you know, societal ills start bubbling to the top, they are good at this. They've done it over and over. They've done it with rap, rock. Oh, yeah. You know, everything. Elvis. Elvis, Elvis started was with the, the music yeah. of the devil. Jerry Lee Lewis so, was yeah. channeling demons with his uh, piano. They're I good mean, yeah. at blaming the music instead of looking at any kind of problem, real problems that might well, be Well, Geraldo even had Ozzy Osbourne appear as a guest, 
But when he was asked about the connection between, you know, heavy metal music and these crimes, they basically, like, just cut him off before he was even allowed to answer and give any kind of so he just wanted to show substantial his, defense. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Him. Yeah, it's clothes. just like, oh, look, look at this guy. Oh, he's so responsible And he calls for all himself the and Prince then, of Darkness. Yeah, and bites heads off of bats and stuff. Wasn't it a bat that he bit the head off of yeah. back in the day? Well, in 1985, and being children of the 80s, we probably definitely remember this, but a lot of our listeners probably remember as well, a committee known as the Parents Music Resource Center, headed up by none other than Tipper Gore. Sound like some open-minded people. Yeah, they made up a playlist of songs that they thought were inappropriate. They dubbed it the Filthy 15. Fuck yeah. And it was used to serve as a template for legislation regarding how albums would be rated. Like if there should be extra warnings. And you remember the parental warning label. Yeah. We had that on CDs. And a lot of times, I mean, there was like a record store in town where I could go buy those CDs and there's no problem. But, you know, if you were trying to buy them at like a major... Corporate store, store, yeah, Walmart like a Sam nowadays. Goody or something. Yeah. They would be like, "Are you eighteen? And you'd have to get like your parents to buy it for you. And fortunately, like my dad was kind of a dipshit, so I could just be like, "Hey, I want this," and he'd be like, "All right," because he didn't know anything about music. He'd just be like, "I can't believe you don't want to get yourself a thirty-eight special album. Who was this Pearl Jam or you know whatever?" Anyway, yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah, so that was crazy. You know, they're basically um. It was a lot harder to get music back then. They were controlling it like a controlled substance. Right. And of this filthy 15, nine of these songs were metal and included Judas Priest's Eat Me Alive, Motley Crue's Bastard. I mean, really? Motley Crue? How did Motley Crue make the list? I don't know. ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You. How did... <laughs> High and Dry by um, Def Leppard. Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. Oh, my God, dude. What a joke. Wasp's Animal song, which, um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Into the Coven by Merciful Fate, Black Sabbath's Thrashed, and Venom's Possessed. But what's really crazy is how much they failed on this mass satanic hysteria. Well, yeah, you're putting up... In these songs? Because, you're... like, they chose ACDC's song... Um, which was uh, Let Me Put My Love Into You. Instead which of Highway like to Hell. A song about sex. as a Yeah, or Hell's Bells. Yeah. Which were probably the band's biggest hits and could be interpreted as occult-themed. And also, during that time, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was the satanic serial killer who, you know, of course, terrorized love. greater Los Angeles. And he showed up to court with a pentagram carved in his flesh he, you know, loved ACDC. I mean, he was like all into this. And he made victims pray to Satan yeah. or ask Satan if he's going to kill him or not. So instead of choosing like, a, you know, a song that might actually be related, they pick some song that's just basically like a sex song. I don't know. Well, it just proves what they're doing. So that was a big thing happening during this satanic panic. So then parents are forcing their kids to throw out albums, burn albums, you can't buy certain music if you're Censorship. under it. Yeah, I mean, it was just like a crazy thing. And then you also have to realize during this time that the black Norwegian metal scene was, you know, brewing. No wonder it was, like it was so and it was bad. All this stuff happening at the same time. I never think about it when I look at all these events separately. But right. all this happened, like, even, even, even with Ramirez. You know, was killing, really killing people and torturing people and, you know, all that stuff. Um, I, no wonder the public was all to hell. And yeah. then stories start coming out of Norway of what you're yeah, bringing up right like here. making international news. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with the Norwegian black metal scene, Euronymous was founder of that scene and pretty much the central player in all of that. He was co-founder and guitarist of the Norwegian black metal band Mayhem and was pretty much the only constant member from 1984 until his death in 1993. Right. So he was just like the guy. And he also was founder and owner of an extreme metal record label, Death Like Silence Productions, and he owned a record shop, Helvete. And Euronymous, of course, was a professed Satanist, 
And he was known for making these really extreme statements. He was reading, uh, leading this kind of militant-like group known as the Black Metal Inner, Inner Circle. So it was like all the cool kids, I guess, yeah. were part of this. Well, yeah, he has a record shop where they can hang out. Yeah. And, right. um, you know, and he's a singer in a band and has this, you know, he's done all this shit. He has a label. He's a, guitarist, a producer. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. So in 1993, he was murdered by fellow musician Varg Vikerns. Varg's an asshole. Yeah, Varg's a, something stupid. Fuck Varg. Yeah, totally. In 1993, Varg stabbed Euronymous during an altercation. Uh, he was arrested, convicted of first-degree murder, and also for arson, because he had burned down multiple churches in Norway, many of those historic. So yes. they knew someone was burning down these historic churches. They assumed it was someone who was a Satanist or involved kind of in that. And then it led to like, okay, these black metal guys. And so, you know, eventually it just catches up to all of them. Plus he was dumb enough to do an interview and confess what he had done. He was basically bragging about it. He's stupid. And he had stated that the killing was in self-defense. He was trying to get the charge to be reduced to voluntary manslaughter, but he was given 21 years in prison. And while he was in prison, he became affiliated with neo-Nazis called the Norwegian Heathen Front. He already had that undertone to his attitude anyway, didn't he? Yeah, a he little was bit already... Of that white, well, that was part of it, is that he was really... Like Nordic tradition. He was like a he nationalist. Was all into this, yeah. And Euronymous and some of those other guys that were part of that black metal inner circle, I mean, they were kind of like, put our thumb in the eye of authority. They're like punk and, attitude. Kinda. Yeah, they were just kind of like anarchists. Like, you can't stop us. This is our music. We'll listen to it. But Barb took it a step further. And yeah. I mean, he really believed that, like, you can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk kind of thing. That's what got the churches started on fire. Yeah. And so, I mean, it just kind of spiraled out of control. But Varg definitely, I mean, he was racist. He was a nationalist. He didn't like Jews. He was anti-Semitic. Didn't like homosexuals. Didn't like people that got away from Nordic tradition. Right, exactly. And um, and these other guys were just kind of like... Posers. Kind of. I mean, if you think about it, yeah. Maybe not Euronymous now, between because his friend... Yeah, so <laughs> a little side note here, if you're not familiar with the story, is Euronymous had... It was the singer. He was the lead singer. His, his name was Death. And he... I just had a lot of problems, and, you know, mentally and eventually killed himself. And when Euronymous found him, he didn't even call the police. He found a camera. He actually drove to a store, bought a disposable camera, came back to the house, took photos of his essentially dead best friend. Yes. Then that's when, after all that, he decided, you know, to let people know what had happened. Then he developed the film and used the picture of his friend on the album cover. Now, you can Google that. You can. You can look up. But um, you can't unsee it after you see it because now this is a real picture. Right. So, I mean, I guess depending on your delicate sensitivities, you may not want to look it up. But I'm used to gore and gross stuff. So, I looked at it and was just like, eh, I'm so desensitized. I had to look it up. But then we watched the movie as well, Lords of Chaos. Right. Everyone should. It's not a great movie, but it's okay. I mean, it tells the story. If you don't know anything about the story of Norwegian black metal, I guess it's about as good as you're going, you know, can do on yeah. movie. I mean, I wasn't like, wow, this is a five-star film by any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, I felt like, okay, just knowing what I know about the story, you know, being a fan of this kind of, you know, scene and whatever, it was, I mean, I thought, okay, this is not too terrible. But his friend slit his wrist, stabbed himself, and then shot himself in the face with a shotgun. Yeah. So, and Death's a really interesting person. There have been some podcasts I've listened to and some research I've done about him. And a lot of people think that he ha suffered from this sort of um, like a mental um, sort of illness. Yeah, what's that called? Will. I can't think of what it's called, but you think you died a long time ago? Yeah, he had had some serious injury and almost died as a child and was revived. And yes. since then, he. The head injury and all the other things had made him feel like he should have died long ago and that he was dead. Dead inside so for real. he, yeah, he wanted to, like, sleep in a coffin. He just felt really weird, like, no emotion. Just he would always consider himself to be dead and just would always do weird things and whatever. Bury his clothes in fresh grave dirt and then yeah. wear them. 
would yeah. keep dead animals like in his room and keep them on his person. Yeah, he would carry around smell like, a, like death, like a dead squirrel in his pocket. Yeah, this cat was for real. Yeah, he but was he, a legit. He was too legit to quit. He was but, nihilistic and certainly had some kind of mental disorder. Right. Right. But interesting guy. So if you want to delve more into that, there's a lot of information out there. But you got to consider, so all this is happening. You've got Richard Ramirez. You've got this metal, filthy 15 music list in the United States. Then you've got these churches burning. You've got this Norwegian black metal scene. Michelle remembers. And crazy. And then you've got all these books coming out. They're on 2020. And They're that, on Geraldo. Your grandma's at home drinking her coffee, watching this, clutching her pearls. Like, oh my gosh, is my little Jimmy out there listening to the Slayer band right. and drinking blood? And every morning and evening news every day has a story about it. Yeah. On top of it. And they're letting you know about everything. Every newspaper. So, yes, now we're in full-blown satanic panic. Right. This is when it's, at, I think it's hot, don't you think, with all the stuff that happened and the false accusations? and. Yeah, and so when did that, like, what was it, the Martinville? Oh, uh, yes. Tell us um, a little bit about that, because I know some of it, but not tons of details. So can you share that with us as well? Yes, yeah, so uh, in this full, what she just described is happening, you know, all over the world. I guess we're getting a little long-winded, but all this crazy stuff happening it starts off these some famous cases of false accusations, which all these typically turn out to be. That's not to say no one's ever done a bad thing and, and claimed. There's Richard Ramirez. It's proof of that. All these Satanists or whatever are not innocent people. But, you know, most of them are just kids in black T-shirts. Yeah. And pierced faces and stuff. So you had the McMartin Preschool in 1980s. Um, accusations of... Ritual, ritualistic sexual abuse began in 1983, and the media showed the stories constantly, and um, which led to I think about six or seven the owners and people that worked there being uh, taken into custody, and trials actually lasted from 1984 till 87 for all these six or seven people, and. Um, after six years of trials, all charges dropped in 1990. Totally baseless. Totally. Um, but people's lives were ruined with this. It was well. This was a case of a. Uh, if people aren't familiar with, it, I know you are. Right. Uh, a little bit of uh, this is one of the more famous cases of tainted confessions, if you will. They're asking all these kids questions, but all the investigators were leading them leading them on, tainting them, planting these uh, seeds in their head and, you know, keeping them talking until they told them what they wanted to say. And then you have parents talking to other parents and kids hear other kids saying, well, my mommy told me to say this, you know, and it just... Well, it's just these leading questions. Yes. And so since then, they've come to find out through, you know, research, psychologists, sociologists have determined that, you know, there's sort of a specific line of questioning for kids. Yes. That if you're going to interview them about these types of things, like these are the questions you ask, you know, not these leading questions. Right. And there's a certain way to approach it. Right. There's there's a whole outline for that now, and it comes from... But it took all of this... I mean, this ruined people's lives. Yes, it was... Uh, I think it was up upwards of... Um, well, all those people got death threats and things like that for years after. Even after... Even though it was... Um, you know, they were found not guilty, but, you know, people still believed it. Still believed the stories and the accusations, things like that. And no convictions of any of the people. And it turns out, was the most expensive criminal trial to date at the time. That's how much money, municipal money, was wasted on all these false accusations. Wow. It's pretty crazy. It is crazy. It is insane. And so, yeah, there was that. And, um... Lots of other ones, obviously, I'm leaving out, but um, all kinds of uh, false accusations, people's lives ruined, and um, I'm sure a lot of other stuff. How You had the West Memphis Three there, you know, their lives ruined for 18 years. And then another interesting thing I can never leave out about them is after all that time and the retrials and DNA proving other stuff and all this stuff that happened in that case, when they reached a plea deal to get out, after 18 years, they made them enter an Alford plea. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so now the Alford plea basically says, I'm not going to, let me see, I always try to get this wrong. I'm not going to contest, it's basically saying that you're not guilty, but you're going to say on paper you're guilty. Right, yeah. Right. And that, that so in this, and what this does is it keeps people from having recourse in civil like suing the punitive state damages, or something, yes, right? all that. You're basically the state saying you can go home. We know you didn't do it, but on paper it's going to look like you did it. And that comes from a um, 1970 Supreme Court case of Henry C. Alford versus North Carolina, um, and that had actually what well, the question was: Is this type of plea legal? And the court deemed it was. Okay. So yeah, they sh so basically it shit on them in the end. Yeah, of course. You know, they, did. they ruined their life. They didn't let them out during all these appeals. And then in the end, they made them basically say they're guilty. Right. And give up all their rights to sue the states and all that. Well, just wrapping up here, I have a list of some satanic murders. So if you're interested in true crime, which clearly you are, you're listening to us, um, and you want to do further research on this topic and investigate some of these um, murders for yourself, of course, there's the Ricky Queso. Um, crime that I talked about earlier. Yeah, I'm going to read all about that one. Nikolai Oglebiak. <laughs> I'm never going to remember how to spell that one. Well, to appease Satan, a group of young Russian kids decided that they had to step up their game and started doing these human sacrifices. And they were led by this choir boy, Nikolai Oglebiak. I can't speak Russian. But he basically lured four teenage friends into the woods. Once they were in the woods, the Satanists stabbed each victim uh, 666 times. Then they partially ate the victims, and they ended up being arrested after human bones were found near this guy's house. And they told police that uh, Satan was going to help them to avoid responsibility, that they had made all these sacrifices. They had tried to turn to God, but he didn't do anything for them, so they prayed to Satan and things got better. Okay. Then, of course, we talked about the black metal church burnings. If you want to go check that out, um, these happened, of course, in Norway in the early 90s. Um, there were something like 50 acts of arson committed by black metal musicians and black metal fans from 92 to 96. Yeah. But one of the most tragic losses of this was the 11th century national landmark, the Fantoft Stave Church. How old was that church? 11th century. 11th century. Yeah. So, yeah. Another one that you can look into if you're interested in these Norwegian black metal crimes, uh, the band Gorgoroth was one of the most satanic bands in history. The singer Gall worshipped Satan, committed a lot of violent acts in his name. He was actually sentenced to a year in prison in 2002 for violently assaulting and torturing a stranger at a party. The stranger apparently made a move to leave the party before Gall allowed him to go. So Gall hit the man, tied him to a chair, tortured him, collected the guy's blood in a cup, saying he was going to sacrifice him and drink his blood. And this had been a pattern. He'd been convicted for similar crimes um, before and even after. And every time he went to court, showed up wearing satanic symbols. And you've got the Beasts of Satan. They were actually an Italian satanic cult in the late 90s. Really? So this is we should have talked about them. hysterical in the U.S. alone. I mean, this is worldwide. You've got this thing happening in Europe, you know, in Norway. You've got this happening in Italy. They were basically a group of friends that loved black metal. And in 1998, the cult members murdered two of their friends and allegedly danced on their graves. And then the cult killed again six years later. And eventually in 2004, the ringleaders um, were arrested. Everybody went to trial. They ended up getting some lengthy prison sentences. Elise Pauler is another case. Um, she was a teenager with a successful life. She was brutally murdered and her corpse was desecrated by members of Hatred, which is this California metal band. Three of the band members lured Pauler to their home, killed her, performed these satanic rituals with her body. And her family um, sued the band Slayer for supposedly inspiring the killers. But the suit was thrown out of court. Yeah. So, wow, there's a lot there. I guess you could there's probably just go more. on and on and on about that. Well, we talked about Richard Ramirez. There's also the Ripper Crew, which was four ser serial killers between 81 and 82 that stalked and murdered prostitutes in Chicago. The Ripper Crew? The Ripper Crew. 
Um, there is a guy, Rodrigo Orias Gallardo. He was in the black metal band from Chile um, that committed uh, some heinous satanic murders. Um, just a crazy story. So that's one to check out. We've got Miranda Barber. She and her husband were known as the Craigslist Killers. And they apparently pledged their allegiance to Satan. And all of these deaths supposedly were part of that. So something to look into uh, if you want to find out more about satanic murders. Wow. Yeah, I'll go back and listen to some of that. And there's a few I'm going to pick away from that myself. Yeah, some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, so I guess we've carried on a little bit, but uh, we just had a lot to say. We about, did. It's all um, pretty interesting. Yeah, a lot to say about satanic panic. Yeah, and it's uh, it's fascinating. Consequences are to this day can be you know now they go these types of things go live on the web nowadays. Well, they do, right? and you think about the hysteria, and you're like, how could something like this just sweep a nation and people become so enthralled? But it's easy to see. I mean, and this took place in the 80s and 90s, but if you look back, think of the witch hysteria, I know. the Salem witch trials. I know. And that was in the 1600s, and it's essentially kind of the same thing. It's exact, It's it's actually the exact same thing. I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought it, because yeah, you you listen about the witch trials, and you're like, how in the world could this happen? But it is actually, you know, they've come to call this type of thing the witch trials, satanic panic, and many other instances in um, history. It is a mass hysteria, yep. which is a phenomenon that tra transmits collective illusions of threat, or albeit real or imagined, and it rips through a, a population, doesn't matter the size of the population. Well, I think it all boils down to the fear of the unknown. And yes. people are automatically going to be scared of what they don't understand. And people and are so going to do what their neighbors are doing. And if you're different, if you stand out, if you believe something differently from everybody else, yeah. and you're a nonconformist, you're, I mean, you're an easy target. Yep. If uh, you are different than the other even 10 people, and they're scared, and they think that doing something to you can keep them safe, you're done. Yeah, or You're it's going to protect them. Right. Like, oh, well, I don't want this attention focused on me, so let's shift it to the weird guy. Let's, exactly. let's so, call out the weirdo. Yeah, and that is often fueled by rumor and unknown fears. It's true. So there you go. That can uh, happen and happen and it'll happen again. I'm sure. Um, so over something. So guys, uh, I, I think you guys are cooler than that. You won't take part of mass hysteria, because I know I won't, because I never believe what everybody else believes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to this bonus episode here on Mountain Murders, The Satanic Panic. Yes.